Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is a colleague and frequent guest on the show, Nicole Gelinas. Nicole is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal, and a columnist at the New York Post. She's one of the most regular contributors on our website and in the magazine, but she's here today to talk about a couple of lengthy essays she's written about recently uh, on New York City and its future. One is on Rikers Island, and the other is on the public transit system. So we'll get her thoughts on the mayoral race, Governor Cuomo's problems, and more in addition to those two other topics. As I've mentioned in a previous episode a few weeks ago, the City Journal team has put the finishing touches on a new special issue of the magazine called New York City Reborn. It has a lovely cover design, so I encourage you to check out the article lineup on the website, take a look at the cover art, and we'll post it on social media sometime soon. Uh, Nicole, thanks very much for joining us. Good afternoon, Brian. It's nice to talk with you. Yes. Um, So to start, for our winter issue, you wrote about the plan to replace Rikers Island as the main correctional complex in New York City. More than a year ago, New York approved a bill to build four smaller high-rise facilities dispersed across the different boroughs of the city. The plan was slated to cost something like, I don't know, $9 billion, and it's already uh, years behind schedule. Now, you note it's undeniable the conditions at Rikers are abysmal, in your words, but you believe that improvements can be made in that prison complex, and the city's plan is impractical. Could you elaborate a little bit uh, for listeners on your views on this issue? Yeah, there's no question that we need to build new modern jails on Rikers Island. You know, just like much of the city's infrastructure, the existing jail buildings are decades old. Many of them were built to be temporary buildings. They they have people working and doing uh, hospital work and other other work out of trailers, for example. Uh, So no one is saying we should condemn people who have not been convicted of crime yet to unlivable, inhumane conditions. But unfortunately, this overly ambitious project is is delaying a, a rebuilding on Rikers Island and a, an evolution to more humane conditions for the inmates there who are awaiting trial or serving very short sentences. This project was supposed to be done by 2026. It has now been delayed to at least 2028. And yes, as you said, it will cost $9 billion to close Rikers Island and build high-rise jails in four different boroughs. So Queens, Brooklyn, Manhattan, and the Bronx. A lot of problems with building high-rise jails in four different boroughs. First of all, there are no examples of successful high-rise jails anywhere in the West. I mean, when the de Blasio team went out to Europe and look at successful uh, jail projects, the jails that they visited are all campus-style jails, which means they're spread out on multiple acres. Jails, uh, American jails that have been rebuilt over the past decade, also campus-style jails. Where, so, yes, so that's, 
That's like Rikers, in other words, right? Yeah, I mean, you want you want multiple multiple acres. You know, Rikers is is four hundred acres, so that you can have outdoor space, you can have exercise uh, space, you can have uh, urban gardening and farming, raising animals, uh, doing all kinds of outdoor therapy, natural light. It's very difficult to do those things. In a high-rise environment. I mean, even if you think about people who live in luxury high-rise buildings, there's not a lot of outdoor space. There's a lot of issues with people waiting in line for elevators, uh, uh, inadequate common space. And imagine trying to do those things in a jail environment where there are also all sorts of security considerations. You know, how many elevator banks can you put in a high-rise when you have certain inmates that can't go near other certain inmates and they may not even know each other, you know, just different gang affiliations. Uh, you know, elevators take up a lot of room if you have to build in redundancy because you need you need five different elevator banks to bring people uh, down and up for court cases. You're taking out, out a lot of your space in your high rise. How do you get natural light into a high rise jail when you're wedging them into four very dense neighborhoods? I mean, one of them would be built on the outskirts of China Chinatown. This is already a very dense neighborhood. So the problems that are on Rikers, uh, no, no question, again, that there are very real problems. Another problem is the transportation. But it's just like getting to the airport. It's far away, uh, yes, but with better transportation connections, it would be much easier to bring family members, to bring uh, lawyers to, to the island. Uh, you know, you, you could have ferry service, you could have more frequent bus service. I mean, the bus only uh, comes an hour and a half uh, during non-COVID uh, times when you can have visitors, so just have much more frequent bus service. Things like long, long waits for family members uh, to go through security to go visit their relatives. You can add staffing, have more efficient staffing, and have a much shorter wait. So all of the problems that people say, well, this means we need to close Rikers, you're going to have those problems wherever the jails are located. And you can, if you treat Rikers as an open campus, you could really do a lot with it that you cannot do in a dense urban environment. And there is, of course, community opposition in the boroughs where these these new high-rise jails are supposed to go up, right? Yeah, it's striking that you have four very different neighborhoods, but all four neighborhoods rejected the new jails at, at their uh, community board meetings two years ago. So a middle-class neighborhood like Kew Gardens, Queens, uh, rejects the jail because they don't uh, want to see destabilization of a middle-class uh, neighborhood. Uh, but a poor neighborhood, uh, you look at Mott Haven in, in the South Bronx, this is a poor neighborhood, almost entirely black and Hispanic. But the community board there, uh, they see it as very insulting that, that uh, the government is saying, well, there's no future for your young people, except for that a lot of them are going to end up in jail. So we want to locate the jail in your neighborhood so it's convenient for their relatives to visit them in jail. I mean, what kind of uh, symbol does that send to, to young people? And also, you know, people say, if when in the case of this, this is obviously, yes, it is a high crime neighborhood, unfortunately, but people, the vast majority of people are not engaged in crime. When they have problems with young people engaged in gang violence, gun violence, uh, uh, drug sales, 
most of the people in the neighborhood they want the small criminal elements they don't they don't want them in the neighborhood they want them taken to jail and taken out of the neighborhood you know people are saying uh, when if, if the jail is put in Mott Haven, people are going to solve their problems on the street outside of uh, of the jail. So you know you you want to remove crime from the neighborhood, not build infrastructure to keep the crime in the neighborhood. Um, your your piece in the special issue, which is forthcoming, uh, New York City Reborn is the name of the issue. The essay is called "How to Save Gotham Transit." and it's about the MTA and the city's transportation system. Uh, it's obviously been a very tough year for New York City. Um, you know, and you, you live in the city and you, you've seen what's been going on directly. Uh, ridership on the subways, I think, is still 30% to 40% down, uh, you know, from where it was pre-pandemic. Uh, now that's rising a little bit, but for the most part, office workers, commuters, there, there hasn't been a flood back into the city yet. Uh, what's your take on the city's transit system, its finances, and what it needs to do to help New York rebound from this, this uh, very bad year? Yeah, if you look at ridership, there is a little bit of good news. We've had our first couple of days where we've almost reached 2 million daily riders uh, for a time. It was only in the hundreds of thousands. So on a normal pre-pandemic uh, day, you would have 5.5 million people riding the subways every day. So getting back to 2 million uh, certainly a good sign, but yes, it, the ridership remains very, very low at, you know, 30, 30 to 35% of normal ridership. So we're not going to re rebuild and recover New York City unless we get people back onto transit. I mean, a very dense, uh, high-rise city does not work with everyone in their own individual private car. So one of the main things New York has to do to convince people to go back into offices, uh, hopefully come back to entertainment and in uh, other uh, leisure activities once those things start to open up, is make them feel comfortable on transit. Uh, only so much they can do until people are vaccinated, until people feel comfortable. I think people gradually, they will want to do something. Doing that thing will necessitate them going on transit. And so they'll come back, they'll get used to it, uh, and we'll, we'll rebuild the transit ridership from there. Uh, but one of the sticking points now is, is high crime. I mean, we've had eight murders on the subway system in the course of a year since last March. Normally, you would have one or two murders on the subway system every year. So this is something that the city, which the city rather than the state is in charge of crime on the subway. The city has to make this a much secure feeling, uh, both in perception and reality, to convince people to come back, especially if people have not been on the transit system for a year. So they're reading all of these stories and they're understandably nervous about venturing back. Sure. Um, Mayor Bill de Blasio is wrapping up his final year in office, as you know, and you've had the opportunity uh, to moderate some virtual discussions with some of the mayoral candidates. You've been following the race pretty closely. I wonder if you could share with uh, listeners your view of the race as it currently stands. Well, I think the good news, and yeah, the, the Democratic primary is in three months. So 
this this race is coming up. We almost certainly will have a new mayor uh, decided by late June. So it's important that people who can vote are paying attention. But I think the good news is that there is a full spectrum of choice. You know, there's kind of a myth that all of the candidates running are far left-wing candidates. They all uh, are, are pushing the same policies, but that's not really the case. I mean, yes, there are some some candidates who fit that mold, but for example, someone like Catherine Garcia, the former sanitation commissioner, uh, she said, yes, if people are using uh, drugs on the open street, then yes, we do have to use the criminal justice system as a, as a deterrent. So people have to be arrested if they are engaged in that behavior. She said people don't have a right to live on the subway system uh, and that we also can't put up with homeless encampments on the street. And then, of course, on the other side of the spectrum, you have a candidate like Maya Wiley, also from the de Blasio administration, really pushing a non-policing approach to dealing with crime. Uh, so, and then in the middle of there, there's a lot of different candidates, you know, Ray McGuire, former Citigroup executive, business experience. But on the other hand, he says, yes, he, he does want to raise taxes. He wants the wealthy to pay a little bit more. Uh, and then Andrew Yang, a tech nonprofit uh, executive before he joined the race, he is really leaning against uh, tax increases. So there's there's a lot there and a lot for people to choose from. Turning to the state level, Governor Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, has been under, obviously, an enormous amount of pressure lately, uh, accused of inappropriate behavior by a number of of women. Uh, Democrats and Republicans across the state have called for him to step down. There's even rumors of an impeachment push. Now, all of this, of course, comes after it was revealed that his administration Uh, knowingly misled the public on the number of nursing home deaths during the height of the pandemic. So one one question that comes to mind is, if Cuomo were to be removed from office or or step down, what comes next? Uh, Democrats hold a majority currently in both parts of the state legislature. So uh, it's entirely conceivable that the next governor could be more of a problem than Andrew Cuomo. Uh, at least for people on the right side of the spectrum. Yeah, Brian, I mean, there's there's two ways of thinking about it, right? I mean, one way would be if the Assembly and, uh, and the Senate, if there are enough uh, legislative votes to actually convict him in an impeachment then he shouldn't he shouldn't bring it upon the voters of New York to have to go through this long process if it is a foregone conclusion and have the negotiations over the budget and all sorts of other pressing issues uh, stretched out for weeks and weeks while they go through this investigation. So, you know, Cuomo knows how to count votes. Uh, he can obviously see whether that's the case and this is a foregone conclusion or not. But on the other hand, we have to think about the precedent that this is setting. Yes, he is he is accused of some ser- very serious uh, allegations in in uh, one individual, for example, uh, saying frankly that he he groped her, and which is would basically be a sexual assault. But uh, and of course these should be investigated and taken very seriously. But on the other hand, uh, is this so? Are elected officials saying that in all cases, if they are ever accused of any kind of wrongdoing from now on, 
that they will just step down? And what is the threshold for that wrongdoing? Are we talking, does it have to be illegal? Does it have to go against your workplace uh, guidelines? Are we talking about corruption allegations? You know, they are setting a different threshold. So I think we should think about the precedent that that sets. But what comes after Cuomo? I mean, you're absolutely right. We have a, a much further, further left-wing uh, state legislature, uh, and the legislature is pushing right now a tax hike uh, package, where even though we've just gotten this record uh, federal relief money, uh, New York State right now has more money than it knows what to do with, but they want to raise taxes and, and raise the top uh, income tax rate by a full third, not even because it's an emergency and because they need the money, just as an ideological uh, point of victory in saying that they raise taxes. So I do think uh, this is not the best time for chaos in in state governments. You know, Cuomo uh, maybe uh, he he has also not ruled out tax hikes, but I think he would be a little bit of a pushback against that sort of far left advance. Thanks very much, Nicole. Don't forget to check out Nicole's uh, Gelinas's work at City Journal. Uh, we'll link to some of the recent essays we've just discussed in the episode description. She also has a column, as I mentioned at the top, a weekly column in the New York Post, and you can follow her on Twitter at Nicole Gelinas. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on Twitter at City Journal and on Instagram at City Journal underscore MI. Uh, as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a nice rating on iTunes. Thanks very much again, Nicole, and good to talk with you as always. Thank you, Brian. Nice to speak with you as well. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.